Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the conference, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Caroline Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Charlotte. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Transplantation as a Treatment Option for Multiple Myeloma. And uh, this is actually the first time we've offered this topic for, this, for multiple myeloma, and we're very delighted to be having this topic um, presented today um, as a, its own program and to have so many of you on the call today. This is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations and many other blood cancer organizations. And it really is because of your interest in the topic and um, our collaboration with all these organizations that we have over 533 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. So it's really a credit to you that you are spending this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, and an educational donation provided by Amgen. And I really want to thank them for supporting this, this program. And it's, it's a program that we hope to offer um, in the future as well. It's, that, um, it's, it's an important program to offer. We have wonderful speakers today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. William Bensinger. And Dr. Bensinger is, sent, is actually um, Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, SCI's Personalized Medicine Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bensinger is going to present an overview of transplantation, transplantation as a treatment option for myeloma, and general guidelines for transplantation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Bensinger. Thank you, Carolyn. It's really a pleasure to be here, an honor, and I'm very excited to talk about this uh, in more detail. This is a, a very important component of treatment for many patients with myeloma, and uh, I think it's important to get the word out that it, is, it, it can be quite beneficial. So when patients have symptomatic myeloma and they need treatment, generally they're given some initial type of therapy. And that can be uh, two of the drugs that we use, but frequently and increasingly we're using even three drugs to get initial therapy. And that therapy is given anywhere from three to six months or so of treatment. And that is done really to get the disease under control and to improve the symptoms that the disease causes and also to improve organ function. Hopefully, after that initial therapy, patients have achieved a very good response, either a complete response or, a, or at least a good partial response. Following that, usually some sort of additional therapy is given. For transplant patients, we, we, we call this consolidation therapy, and that's usually a different type of therapy from what they've received originally. Transplant involves the use of very high-dose chemotherapy, usually the drug is melphalan, designed to more effectively control any uh, residual myeloma that's left in the body. The consequence of that, though, is that the high doses of melphalan also damage the bone marrow and damage its ability to make blood cells. And this is where the transplant comes in. 
Now, most frequently, this is using the patient's own bone marrow or stem cells. We use almost exclusively what we call peripheral blood stem cells collected from the blood, and those are used to restore marrow function. And uh, Dr. Patel is going to follow with a lot of the logistics of how this is done and what the side effects and how things go with that. But a transplant has been around now for about 20 years, and it really, before the new drugs came around, was really the first therapy that had an impact on the disease uh, such that patients lived longer. And that's the, the reason is that uh, the high doses of melphalan result in higher responses, higher complete responses, and this uh, in turn translates to longer disease control, a longer disease-free interval, and better survival. Now, this has sometimes been called into question with the newer drugs because they're so effective, but I'm happy to say there's very good data that, that supports the idea of transplant, even with the new combinations. Uh, there are situations sometimes where other treatments such as tandem transplants or post-transplant consolidation is used, and I will have more to say about that a little bit later. Now, occasionally patients can receive a transplant from a donor. These are called allogeneic transplants, and they have a, their own specific and different complications and risks. They're used relatively infrequently in myeloma, uh, because of the higher risks, even though they have certain advantages in some cases. But generally speaking, we don't recommend them off a clinical trial because of this. As I mentioned, Dr. Patel is going to talk more about who is a candidate for transplant. But in the, in the days before the novel drugs, uh, it was shown very clearly that a, a transplant, even after induction therapy, improved the, the rates of complete remission, and these translated into longer disease control. Now, as far as the new drugs go, there are four new trials uh, that have been published in the last couple of years, uh, covering literally about 2,000 patients with multiple myeloma. And all of these trials, even though they had different induction regimens and different types of consolidation, they all showed that a transplant significantly improved uh, disease control and the treatment-free interval after transplant. And two of the trials with the longer follow-up have shown improved survival. So there is quite strong data, I think, demonstrating uh, that transplant is more beneficial. These trials, just uh, to tell you, came from a number of centers in uh, Europe. Uh, in the U.S., we don't have a similar trial that's, that's been reported with the new drugs, but there were two studies from Italy showing benefit for transplant after induction with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, uh, and there was a, a wider European trial using a regimen that we call Cybor-D, all showing that transplant uh, improved outcomes compared to conventional therapy. There was also a trial from France using a more commonly used U.S. regimen with uh, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. 
Again, that also showed improved outcomes for patients undergoing transplant. So I think the, the data is pretty strong supporting uh, the use of stem cell transplants. Now, one of the questions that's been raised is whether a second transplant may be more beneficial or after transplant, if you give additional cycles of a regimen, such as uh, bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone, if that can improve outcomes. And so that trial actually was reported, this was a U.S. trial where every patient who is age 70 or under and eligible for transplant got initial induction therapy, had a single transplant, and then they were randomly assigned in three groups. One group followed their single transplant with just maintenance therapy. A second group had a second autologous transplant and then had maintenance therapy. And a third group got uh, four cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone, and they went on uh, to maintenance therapy afterward. This trial was reported about six months ago, and it shows absolutely no difference between the three groups. So right now, at least, based on the U.S. data, there doesn't appear to be a benefit beyond a single transplant in terms of additional consolidation or a second transplant. Now, I have to say, in all fairness, though, there was a European trial that looked at a similar question now, they did use different induction, but they did see a small benefit for a second transplant or a small benefit for consolidation therapy. So while uh, there, are, there are these conflicting data, uh, I think right now a single autologous transplant is sort of the standard of care. Now, some of the additional questions that are being asked are what about the best induction regimen? Are there, are there three drugs that are the best or even four drugs? And these things are being addressed uh, by several trials. There are trials that incorporate one of the newest regimens, uh, newest drugs, daratumumab, which is a monoclonal antibody, into the initial therapy. And those trials, at least preliminarily, look very impressive, but uh, we have to wait to see uh, uh, more patients enrolled and more mature data to determine that. And the other question is that since transplant is not a cure for most patients, what is the role of maintenance therapy? And this isn't the scope of this discussion, but suffice it to say that there is pretty strong data that maintenance therapy in some form, either single drug or sometimes more than one drug, can uh, as much as double the length of remission after transplant. And it's used, I think, for the majority of patients, uh, but it's something you should talk to your physician about. Is it right for me? What are the benefits? What are the risks? Because there are risks to maintenance therapy. And so it just in summary, I think a transplant is an important component of treatment, and uh, I'm going to finish my talk at this point and turn this over to Dr. Patel, I think. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Benson, for that was excellent, really outstanding, and really set the whole stage for today's program. So thank you very much, and lots of important information. With questions to you, I'm sure, during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Krish Patel. Dr. Patel is with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Institute, 
and Dr. Patel is going to address types of transplantation and the importance of clinical trials. It's my pleasure now, Jennifer, over to Dr. Patel. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you, Dr. Bensinger, for the introduction. I'm going to focus most of my talk on autologous stem cell transplantation, as that is the predominant form of, of transplant that is used in most multiple myeloma patients. And I like to think about the process of transplantation as really having three phases, which I'll talk about. The first phase I think about is pre-transplant assessment and then collection of stem cells. And it's very important that we think carefully about uh, patients' eligibility for transplantation. Now, in general, most patients who are younger than age 70 who have a good performance status are going to be considered eligible for transplant. And as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, we know that transplantation has a benefit across different risk groups for myeloma, so it's important to be inclusive. However, appreciating that there are significant side effects that can result from the transplant process, it's important to make sure that we do appropriate pre-transplant testing. That often starts with restaging of the actual disease, so an assessment of the multiple myeloma. And this is predominantly done for two reasons. One is, as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, the benefit of transplant may be greatest in patients when the amount of disease going into transplant is as little as possible as well as the fact that when we collect stem cells they, they originating from the bone marrow, there can actually be some contamination of that stem cell graft with multiple myeloma cells. So we'd like to collect those stem cells ahead of transplant when there's as little myeloma present as possible. So restaging of the disease is an important first step in that pre-transplant assessment. In addition to that, we tend, to, we tend to look at the patient's general health and can include testing to look at the cardiac function and the lung function of these patients. Um, patients often will undergo testing such as an echocardiogram to evaluate the squeezing function of the heart. They may also do pulmonary function testing to look at their pulmonary capacity and ability to exchange and diffuse uh, critical gases. And these things are felt to be important because they can help identify patients for whom a transplant might have a higher risk of side effects or potentially of mortality. So these testing, uh, these elements of testing are often done as part of the pre-transplant assessment. Now, an important piece to mention is that age alone does not necessarily preclude patients from transplant. And I mentioned that most patients under the ages of 70 are where we think about transplant being an important tool in myeloma. And that does not mean that patients above 70 may not be eligible for transplant, but I think it's important to mention that we have less evidence and data to guide our decision-making in, in older patients about the benefits of transplantation and about the relative safety. And so those patients above the age of 70 may be considered for transplants on an individual basis um, with a, a an important weight on the, the relative potential for benefit versus the risks as is reflected by their overall health. Once patients have undergone their appropriate pre-transplant testing, the next piece of the transplant process includes stem cell collection. So as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, when patients get high-dose chemotherapy that is damaging to the bone marrow in a way um, that can have significant complications. So when we collect the stem cells, ideally, of course, we're collecting those before patients get high-dose chemotherapy. And that is done often by a process called mobilization in which patients receive daily injections of a growth factor called GCSF. 
those injections often go um, for four to six days or so until their stem cells are at a high enough level to collect generally from their peripheral blood. So they will have blood testing to assess for the number of stem cells that have been mobilized out of the bone marrow into the blood in preparation for collection. Most patients can be mobilized with a stem cell uh, growth factor alone called GCSF. Occasionally, patients may need addition of an, another medication to help release stem cells from the bone marrow, which is called plerixifor or Mosabil. And in rare circumstances, patients may not mobilize enough stem cells with either of these two approaches and can even sometimes require addition of a single chemotherapy medicine, typically cyclophosphamide given over one to two days to help kind of mobilize the, the stem cells from the bone marrow for collection. Now, the mobilization process is important. Uh, we're typically trying to shoot for a, a, a certain target of stem cells to collect, and often we're trying to collect stem cells that would allow us to do two transplants if necessary, or to do one transplant immediately and then to save stem cells potentially for a future of a second transplant if it may be appropriate for the patient down the road. Once the patient has had the appropriate mobilization medications and the stem cells are an adequate number to collect, then often we place a, a central venous catheter that allows us to collect the blood, which is then uh, circulated in a machine called an apheresis machine, which helps separate out the stem cells from the remainder of the blood, and that is done typically over a period of about one to four days uh, to collect our target number of stem cells uh, to proceed with transplantation. Once the stem cell collection is completed, those stem cells can be stored in a blood bank until the time uh, at which we are ready to move forward with the actual transplant itself. So that brings us to the next phase of the, the autologous transplant process, which I will consider the actual conditioning chemotherapy and the transplant itself. So as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, our typical high-dose chemotherapy treatment for autologous transplant and multiple myeloma is the use of a single chemotherapy medicine called melphalan, and that is often given as an infusion uh, over a, a single day with a day of rest, and then after that day of rest, patients receive their stem cell uh, infusion. So the stem cells that were collected are reinfused uh, through a central venous catheter, so like a blood transfusion, and those stem cells will find their way into the bone marrow and start to repopulate the bone marrow. It's important to note that most of our patients actually do this transplant process as an outpatient in the clinic. So patients can avoid hospitalization unless they have complications along the transplant process, or in rare circumstances, patients who may be felt to have a higher risk for the potential of complications may be transplanted in the hospital. After the stem cell infusion itself, patients return to the transplant center daily. Um, in that time period, we are assessing patients for any symptoms due to the conditioning chemotherapy. That can include things like nausea or mouth sores. Patients may need uh, intravenous fluids if their appetite is not as good as it once was or their intake of fluids and food is not as good. And they will often be expected to need it uh, blood transfusions or platelet transfusions as the conditioning chemotherapy has knocked down the bone marrow and the blood counts start to fall. From the time of stem cell infusion, we expect that patients will typically take about 10 to 14 days to show the first signs of engraftment, 
Often the white blood cells are the first to recover. The platelets and the red cells follow thereafter. So from the time period of the stem cell infusion until engraftment, patients are coming to the transplant center daily, primarily for supportive care, blood transfusions if needed, and importantly for monitoring of any complications which would include infections. In that time period, patients can be at increased risk for infections as their white blood cell counts are low. And so uh, often in that period, we may also place patients on antibiotics to prevent infectious complications. After the engraftment period occurs, typically at 10 to 14 days, at that point, the patient's white blood cell count has recovered to uh, a level at which the risk of infection is considered to be slightly lower, and then their care may be uh, staggered out from daily visits to something more like every two to three days, depending on their need for additional supportive care, like fluids or anti-nausea medicines, or based on their need for transfusions. As the platelets in the red cells and the white cells continue to recover, patients may need less frequent visits to the transplant center. And typically, around 30 days or so, patients are generally uh, recovered to the point where visits to the center may be one or two times a week. Now, one of the things our patients often share with us is that the the symptom that probably lingers the longest after the transplantation is fatigue, and often that can take about two to three months to recover. So in the period of 30 days to 90 days after transplant, often our patients are coming to the clinic about every two weeks or so, and we're assessing their continued recovery. At that time, while the white blood cell count has recovered, patients' immune systems are still uh, redeveloping and they're still at risk of infections, and we often add additional medications to reduce the risk of specific infections, which can include antiviral medications and medications that protect them against specific types of pneumonia. About 90 days after the transplant typically might be the first time we would consider doing restaging studies on our patients, so that would be an assessment of the, the level of myeloma that may be present or not. And then at six months post-transplant, the immune system has recovered to a level where we can revaccinate our patients against uh, specific types of infections. Uh, we don't typically do those vaccine series earlier because the immune system takes time to recover, and so you need it to be in a functional uh, state where it can actually respond to the vaccines that are being given. So the series of vac revaccinations against things like meningococcus, pneumonia, and H. influenza uh, occur in about six months post-transplant. The immune recovery continues for about six to 12 months after. And in this period of time, it's important that patients continue to visit the transplant center where they had their transplant for periodic checkups and to continue their vaccinations. Many of the medications that are started after transplant to protect against specific infections may be discontinued in that six to 12 month period of time. And we continue to recommend in that time frame that patients avoid live vaccinations of viruses up to 24 months after their transplant. Now, a common question a lot of our patients ask us is about, as I start to uh, feel improved energy levels and I'm feeling well, what kinds of activities can I do and what should I think about in terms of travel? And a lot of times in that time frame, we'll tell our patients for the first two to three months after transplant, it's important to be mindful of the fact that the immune system is still quite weak. And generally, we encourage patients to remain 
close to their home or close to their uh, physicians so that they can be evaluated if they do develop infection complications. Typically, after about three months or so, travel is generally an option, although we tell patients, again, to use common sense and think about uh, where they're traveling, what they're eating, and be uh, you know, well-prepared to, to um, protect themselves against the potential for infections. And then after that period of time, again, as each individual patient responds or recovers from the transplant, uh, they may have more opportunity to engage in the activities that they were doing pre-transplant. So that kind of defines the post-transplant care period. And at this point, I will uh, turn over the discussion to Dr. Pagel. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Patel. That was really outstanding. And um, thank you for um, really all the details that you provided to our participants. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. John Pagel. Dr. Pagel is Chief of Hematologic Malignancies Program, Director of Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Institute. Dr. Pagel is going to address communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life, practical tips to manage post-treatment concerns, and follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Pagel. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Um, it's a tough act to follow. Those were, I, I would just say, two outstanding presentations from Dr. Bensinger and Dr. Patel, and I'm here to kind of uh, maybe uh, sweep up after them, and uh, I, I'm not sure there's very much to sweep up, but I'll give it a go. Um, you know, uh, the follow-up in uh, patients after a stem cell transplant for myeloma will focus on lots of different issues and uh, items that need to be addressed over some period of time. Dr. Patel already talked a lot about vaccinations, so I won't do that again. But really, we do think about disease-specific follow-up and just overall health maintenance follow-up after a stem cell transplant for myeloma. We do know that people are at risk for infections. Dr. Patel alluded to that and discussed that, in fact. And so we want to use good common sense measures to uh, really make sure that we avoid unnecessary risks. People always ask, well, what can I do to avoid uh, any problems or what should I be doing after a transplant? And I think one of the best answers we give patients is to say it's really just very, very good common sense. You want to avoid infectious risks as a, an example. You want to avoid uh, risk by doing excellent hand washing. You want to, of course, stay away from sick people if you can do that. You want to limit contacts with those type of people or for some period of time, perhaps the first month especially after transplant, avoiding uh, unnecessary crowds or exposures in that way. We always tell patients in that early post-transplant period, again, you know, the first month or up to the first three months, we uh, want to avoid working outside in the yard, perhaps not be cutting wood where we may have spores that are uh, related to a fungal or a fungus. Um, we like to tell patients not to travel to third world countries during this time, obviously. We uh, certainly like to limit exposure to uh, having to change baby diapers. And of course, you get the idea. These are all just common sense things. But also, I tell my patients not to overdo it. Don't get crazy about these things. And why do I say that? 
Well, there's a very, very big difference between this kind of transplant that we're talking about, again, an autologous transplant using your own cells, and the level of immune suppression that goes with that transplant, as opposed to, let's say, an allogeneic transplant, which we really haven't touched much on, where we're using somebody else's cells as a donor, and those donor cells require the recipient patient who gets the transplant to be very heavily what we say immunosuppressed or have the immune system very, very significantly suppressed. This is very different. Most people after a transplant, the biggest problem is just recovering from the morbidity or the problems that go along with the treatment. And it's a recovery period. It again uh, lasts for a month to three months for the most part. People get up and on their feet very quickly and do very well and start eating as alluded to and over some time everything uh, pretty much usually rapidly improves. We do this kind of thing all the time, and it's pretty uh, well known how this is going to go. And what the patient can do is control these things, as I've said, by a little bit of good common sense and avoiding unnecessary risks. We do, of course, want to think about health care maintenance in other ways post-transplant. So in a myeloma patient in particular, we're going to want to make sure that those bones are very strong and we're going to be doing assessments periodically and perhaps just annually on bone density and we would also then reinstitute after the transplant and when things are are well a bone strengthening agent perhaps something like Zomeda which I'm sure many in the audience are on the call are very familiar with and then one of the things that I don't think was alluded to uh, during this talk, at least I don't, uh, maybe I missed it, but often we do a maintenance therapy for patients after a transplant. That's not uncommonly an oral agent, and in particular, it might be an oral agent known as lenalidomide. Uh, many myeloma patients have already seen that drug and maybe seen it for quite a long time, and, uh, and it's also used then as a maintenance therapy after the transplant with the hope that it keeps disease away. And there are other agents, including what we call proteasome inhibitors, such as Velcade or Exazomib or others that are in development as maintenance therapies after a transplant to keep disease away for absolutely as long as possible. One of the things that I thought I might mention, though, is uh, coming back full circle to Dr. Bensinger and that we most often we'll realize that disease still can come back after a transplant, so we like to think of what else we can do for those patients if that does happen. And one of the things that's generated an immense amount of excitement more recently, and I'm sure many in the, on the call have heard about, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, abbreviated as CAR T-cell therapy or CAR therapy. And I thought I might just spend a real quick minute just discussing what that is, but it's not something importantly to know, that everybody will receive. And in fact, it's not even something that we're actively pursuing yet in multiple myeloma. That will come. It's actually not that far off. We hope that it's going to emerge in clinical trials in the next handful of months. Um, but I thought, since there's so much ex enthusiasm about it, it is widely explored in other blood cancers and in particularly and lymphomas, that maybe we talk a little about that briefly as it will become an option for myeloma patients in the very near future. But I want to 
really, again, say before I say much more that this is something that most myeloma patients probably will not see, at least at this stage, because they probably won't need that. What it is, though, is a way to trick the patient's own immune system and own immune system cells into recognizing the myeloma cells that might still be around and eradicate it. So we know that the immune system is really our most powerful drug that we have to control disease. Not only controls our in infections or invading organisms, but it's also important for controlling cells that don't belong there, and those are cancer cells. Those are myeloma cells. But for some reason, our body becomes tolerant to these cells that don't belong, the myeloma cells, and they continue to grow. So we have to re-educate our immune system, those immune cells, to know that the myeloma cells don't belong there, they need to be killed and eradicated. <clears throat> so how do we do that? Well, what we do is we take those most powerful immune cells called the T cells, and we isolate them from the blood. This is just like what was described before at, for collecting cells for reinfusion as part of the autologous transplant. So we take those cells and we isolate out those powerful immune cells known as the T cells and take them to the laboratory. We engineer into those cells a chimeric antigen receptor, a CAR. What is that? It's actually a gene that's delivered inside the cell that is important for making a receptor that ends up on the surface of the T cell. That receptor, or that, what we like to say, lock and key, and this would be perhaps the key, is made to find the lock that's on the surface of the myeloma cell. So we introduce in the key that you might use to open a door on the surface of the T cell, it's made to then find the lock that's on the surface of the myeloma cell. And because that key is on the surface of the T cell, obviously we're bringing the T cells right up close to the myeloma cell. And when we do that, and when the key inserts in the lock of the myeloma cell, it activates and turns that T cell on, and that T cell then will kill the myeloma cell. I want to be clear, this has a long way to go. We haven't even really even started this in myeloma patients yet. It's exciting. It's promising. It's been very, very encouraging in lymphoma patients and some leukemia patients, and I'm hoping that it will be as well for our patients who have multiple myeloma. Lastly, i just say a little bit about follow-up care, not regarding restaging or assessing your disease, but just what, what do you do for general follow-up care? And I always tell patients this, that the most important thing is that you are your own advocate, that no one can make a case for yourself better than you. So you need to make sure that you're communicating extremely well with your physician and your treating team. That includes the nurses and, of course, the entire team. They need to know what's going on with you. Everything is important to hear about if you're a provider, and that's how we know how to help people, of course. So what's the numbness or tingling like in your toes, as an example, and what can we do about it? And we have all kinds of tools and tricks that we can commonly use in that regard. So be your own advocate and, of course, be an active member of the treating team. We're there as a uh, 
as somebody who's on the bus. And in fact, I always tell my patients, you're driving the bus, but I'm right there in the first seat of the bus uh, there to help. And I think we all feel that way. And we all want to do our absolute best for patients as we follow them very, very closely. Carolyn, that's about 11 or 12 minutes. I hope I didn't go too far, but uh, that's where I'll leave it. So you've got plenty of time for questions, I hope. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peglin. You certainly did have lots to add to the call, so thank you for being on the call today and wonderful um, wonderful points that you've made, and I know there'll be questions for you also. And before we take questions, we have one other speaker, um, Elizabeth Ezra. She's an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and she is a program coordinator. And Ms. Ezra will address Cancer Care's free cycle social programs and services and the role of support groups. Um, uh, my pleasure to the program over to Ms. Ezra. Thank you, Carolyn. I am very happy to be part of this important call today. I am an oncology social worker, and I work with many people with multiple myeloma and their loved ones. I would like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. Here are some of the ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's programs, including individual counseling, support groups, either over the telephone or online, education programs such as today, and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and other, and some limited financial assistance, as well as chemo co-payments are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. They are also trained to help cancer patients and their families tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, the physical changes, social adjustments, and psychological impact and care. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or have similar problems. These connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Support groups are a safe place where you can voice your concerns and your fears. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. So again, at this time, Cancer Care offers an online group for people with multiple myeloma, and we do have some financial assistance and for transportation as well as some um, chemo copayment relief. If you are interested in any of the cancer care services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673 or on our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of additional information on your cancer diagnosis and the treatment you need to receive. As we learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your family. 
your social worker prioritize and actually rehearse the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and the information that you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are there to help you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today. Oh, thanks so much, Liz. That was wonderful. And we now have time for questions. And I'm going to ask Charlotte to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And of course, we don't get to them at the very end. I'll give you resources in terms of getting your questions answered. So, but let's take as many as we can, uh, Charlotte. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those for you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. And we have a question from one of our online participants. And this question, um, I'll start with Dr. Benson here with this question. Will the long-term effects of transplantation um, have there been studies? Uh, Dr. Benson, if you could address this in a general way. Yes. So um, as far as long-term effects from autologous stem cell transplant, uh, the major <clears throat> problems that can happen are there is a small risk of developing uh, secondary uh, cancers, mainly blood cancers. This risk is somewhere in the neighborhood of two to two and a half percent. Um, some of that is due to the underlying myeloma, but it's likely that most of that risk is due to the high-dose melphalan. So there definitely is a risk of the second cancers, but it is important to put that in the context of the disease because the, the treatment for the myeloma, including the transplant, can have excellent control of the disease for a good many years. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that or anyone? Okay. Excellent. Okay. Um, and um, we have another online question. So I'm going to give this question to Dr. Um, Patel, and I realize this. Um, so um, I have a donor match for an allogeneic transplant. Can stem cells be saved for treatment at a later time? So uh, Dr. Patel, if you could address the um, the distinction between these yes. types of yes, thank you. Yes. So we talked in the, in the conversation mostly about autologous transplantation, where the patient receives their own stem cells. Uh, for reconstitution of the bone marrow. I think the, the online question is about allogeneic stem cell transplant. So in an allogeneic stem cell transplant, a patient receives uh, stem cells from a donor with the idea that the new uh, donor stem cells will develop a new immune system that provides some additional activity against uh, the cancer being treated. And I think the question is about timing. Um, I think the 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 Principles of timing for an autologous transplant would still apply in the situation of an allotransplant. So it, it really, the timing of transplantation is dictated by the pace and response uh, of the disease to the patient's current treatment and, and relatively speaking, the urgency uh, for that transplantation. Now, there have been some studies to look at early versus late transplantation, and again, those really only apply to autologous transplants. 
And so most of the time in the situation where a patient is being referred or considered for an allogeneic transplant, they are generally considered to be at higher risk for progression of their disease. And so most of the time when patients have a donor identified, if allogeneic transplant is what is being considered as the form of transplantation, then that transplantation often happens um, soon after as long as the patient is otherwise eligible, as we had discussed, and their disease appears, appears to be in, in good control. Excellent. Thank you. Any other comments or Okay, excellent. Um, and we have um, a question from one of our online participants. Um, so this one, um, Dr. Pagel, um, are presenters familiar with a plus one Q chromosome and its limit and its impact on prognosis and treatment? Oh, sure. We are very familiar with that. I'll, I'll ask actually maybe even Dr. Bamsinger to say a little more about that as he's uh, very familiar with that as part of his research as well. But we do know that that is uh, a feature that, as, as there are others, that we, um, we consider higher risk and that um, might even push us more to doing a transplant if we were on the fence about it or not in the right patient. Uh, Dr. Bensinger, would give a little more information on that? I'm sure you can. So, so uh, additional copies of chromosome 1Q, which is a portion of chromosome 1, have been identified as a poor risk feature. This is one of the newer uh, chromosomes that's been identified. This is really only in the last five or six years that we've recognized this as a high, higher risk factor. And depending on the trial, the risk is either moderate or very high. And what I mean by that is that patients who have additional copies of 1Q tend to have considerably shorter lengths of remission and honestly uh, worse survival than patients who do not have this 1Q feature. And for that reason, uh, additional treatments are being recommended for patients with this risk factor as well as others. And that would include uh, not only maintenance therapy with single drugs, but there are trials ongoing looking at two and three drug uh, maintenance combinations, and also the issue of a second transplant. I mentioned the European data, which tended to contradict to some degree the U.S. data on second transplants. They were able to show that in patients who have certain high-risk features, uh, that a second autologous transplant has additional benefit in terms of disease control. It's mainly the high-risk patients that benefit from the second transplant, not the patients who do not have these high-risk features. I knew Dr. Bensinger could probably answer that a little better than me, so thanks, Bill. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, wonderful. I have to say we are very blessed with having a wonderful team of experts here, so thank you so much. And um, we have another online question. Um, and um, pause up just a minute. Um, okay. So, um, so I'm going to ask um, if... Uh, I guess Dr. Patel, if you could address this question. My doctor has me scheduled for cytoxin for stimulation prior to an ASCT next month. Do you believe the risks might outweigh the benefits from this additional agent? Other than myeloma, I am generally healthy. So I'll ask Dr. Patel if you could answer this in a general way, and then we, of course, encourage our um, 
person asking the question to go back, of course, to the treating healthcare team. Sure. So uh, to to talk about that in a general way, so we discussed that the addition of a chemotherapy medicine like cytoxan uh, prior to transplant is often used to help mobilize stem cells for collection. And so in that situation, the cytoxan can also have the effect of reducing the amount of myeloma that may be present prior to stem cell collection or maybe being utilized to improve the yield of the stem cells collected, and it's generally fairly well tolerated, but not necessary for every patient. I don't know, Bill, if you had something to add. No, I, I, I think you answered it very well. Yeah. And um, a question for Dr. Pagel from one of our online participants. What can be done to help recovery time? When can someone go back to their regular routine? I know you were kind of addressed that, but if you could. Oh, it's a great question. That. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to be honest with you, there is no time limit on that, and I think we always tell patients that we want them to get back to their normal routine as fast as they can and as soon as they can. And in other words, what that means is it's okay to, you know get back to some degree of uh, exercise. Now, of course, you're not really commonly uh, going to be running or going to the gym, but certainly up and about and walking and perhaps walking on a track or up hills or whatever. Anything that you can do like that is better, and it's going to help you recover faster. And, of course, you're going to get fatigued and worn out, and we are okay with that. Uh, we want people to be up and about and active. One of the big problems back limiting our ability to get back to normal routines is our ability to, you know, eat well and maintain all of that. And that takes a little bit of time where food starts tasting well and and people are again just feeling well. But in but essentially I want to say there's no major limits on those things. But what about going back to work? Well, we also let the patient large part be a guide for that. In general, you're not really up for going back to work for at least a f usually a few months, maybe a, uh, two to three months at a minimum. Depends on the patient. Some people are pretty active, and they also have jobs where they can work from home, and they may even uh, be have a job that allows them to go back to work just a little bit earlier because it's not overly taxing. But again, I would suggest that you want to kind of limit your exposures to sick people and those things, especially early on. So really, we don't have defined limits of what you when you can't do anything, except those things I kind of mentioned. We really don't want you putting yourself at risk for infections. If you can do things and be active and even doing some work, we're very supportive of that. Excellent. That's very helpful. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and another question from our online participants, um, and I'm Dr. Bensinger. Um, if I would like to try transplantation, how do I minimize side effects? Well, there are several things that can be done to minimize some of the side effects. Um, one thing that we found very helpful is the use of crushed ice in your mouth a half an hour before the high-dose melphalan 
and for several hours afterward. We did a study a number of years ago in which we demonstrated that that could significantly reduce the complications of oral mucositis, which is the sore mouth and throat. And if you're diligent about that, it almost eliminates the mucositis uh, for the majority of patients. The other thing that's important in terms of uh, minimizing side effects is the nausea. The mucositis uh, below the level of the back of your throat uh, isn't effect impacted by the ice chips. So you will get lower GI mucositis with nausea, perhaps some diarrhea. And you can minimize that by taking your anti-nausea meds on schedule. Uh, it's much easier to prevent nausea uh, than it is to try to uh, turn it around once you get it. And so even though sometimes these drugs can be a little bit sedating, I tell my patients I'd rather have you a little bit sleepy and not nauseated than wide awake and nauseated and perhaps throwing up. These are excellent suggestions. That's I hope that's very helpful, and I hope that um, our participants will really utilize these. It sounds very important. Thank you. Um, and um, another question in front of our online participants, um, and I'd like to give this question. Um, so. Second, um, so um, so questions to ask. Someone has had um, a, a question about um, what are. So I'm going to address this question to, uh, to Dr. Um, Patel. Um, so, what are realistic goals for my treatment in terms of transplantation? I think a general question um, from one of our participants. Um, if you could answer yeah. this again in a general way. So, I think to to reiterate on on something Dr. Bensinger mentioned earlier, you know, the goal of transplantation in myeloma is to build upon uh, the induction treatment and to try to improve the amount of time uh, at which the multiple myeloma may stay in a deep remission. So transplantation improves upon our ability to extend that time for remission. And of course, that's always done with a balance uh, against the potential for side effects, although we generally find that transplantation in the right patient is well tolerated. And... Um Another um, question in front of our online participants, um, and actually this is uh, for Dr. Um, Bensinger. So this is, a, again, a, a couple of general questions. What are the risks associated with autologous stem cell transplants, and when would they be outweighed by the benefits? So the, the, the major... Uh, Risk is the the rare, and I, I want to stress rare occurrence of a life-threatening infection or bleeding complication. And uh, Dr. Patel has discussed this, but really um, we do this so routinely now that the the risk of a of really dying from a transplant is is less than one percent. Now those risks may be increased. 
if a patient has significant organ problems, if they have a bad heart or bad lungs, the, this puts a stress, the transplant puts a stress on these organs. And so if a person has uh, going into this uh, uh, bad organ function, uh, they, the risk of complications definitely does increase. And that's where the evaluation before your transplant is important to make sure that you don't have any medical conditions that might increase the complication rate. But overall, this is a very safe procedure with a little acute risk other than what we've discussed. And I did mention the, the long-term small risk of, of second cancers. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we have another question, and this one is actually addressed to all the panelists. So I'm going to ask Dr. Pagel if you would start with this one. What are the panelists' thoughts on using marijuana for nausea? That's actually come up on a number of our different calls. And so... Um, uh, Dr. Pagel, if you could address this again in a general way. And, um... Well, um, I'm happy to address it. I'd say first you're getting opinion, uh, and I think uh, that's something that you might get differing opinions on. But um, And I also say the three of us, all three of the speakers here, are from the state of Washington, so that uh, it makes it a lot more accessible as well. Although medical marijuana is available in almost all states now, if not really all of them, I'm actually very, very supportive of medical marijuana for controlling nausea or other uh, its other health benefits. I think it's uh, been proven to be beneficial, not in every patient. I think um, it's something that. Uh, though does uh, alleviate nausea and can be very, very important for patients who are not getting relief with other agents. The caveat, however, and this is important, is that when you inhale these uh, f uh, marijuana fumes from a marijuana cigarette, as an example, you're inducing or incurring the ability to perhaps in, in, uh, bring in infectious organisms into your lungs as well. That's particularly something that could be very, very problematic. And in particular, if we introduce fungal spores or uh, bringing in fungus into our lungs and in a state where our immune system's not normal, that can be also very, very serious. So I tell my patients, don't inhale it. No smoking, but it's okay to use edible agents. And we also have a, a pill form called Marinol that sometimes can be effective in a form called Marinol, that sometimes can be effective as well. 